0: Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. We'll begin today's show in Glen Echo, Maryland. Just a leisurely stroll from Glen Echo Park. There, at the end of Oxford Road, you'll find a site honoring the Angel of the Battlefield.
1: Uh, this was the home of Clara Barton the last 15 years of her life, so she lives here from 1897 until her death in 1912.
0: National Park Service ranger Susan Finta is showing me around the Clara Barton National Historic Site, the three-story, 35-plus bedroom home of the woman who nursed countless Civil War soldiers and kick-started the American Red Cross. She also headquartered the organization here. But here's the thing. As Susan Finta mentions, Barton dies in 1912. She dies at the age of 90, and she dies of double pneumonia. And yet the Clara Barton National Historic Site wasn't officially established until 1975, at which point... This became the
1: first National Historic Site dedicated to the work of an American woman.
0: So what's with the six-decade delay? Well, it has to do with a so-called spiritual medium, Clara Barton's so-called, well, spirit... And the man whose dedication to Barton swayed him to fall for an elaborate swindle. His name was Dr. Julian Hubble. Can we see his room?
1: Sure. That's on the second floor at the uh, back end of the house.
0: Dr. Hubble was the American Red Cross's chief field agent from 1881, when Barton began the organization, to 1904, when she resigned as president.
1: So this one's Dr. Hubble's bedroom here. We're standing in what served as Claire Barton's private parlor, and in her bedroom through those doors back there.
0: Barton and Hubble's rooms were separated by a mere parlor, but Susan Finta speculates their relationship wasn't romantic. Hubble was 26 years younger and idolized Barton. Barton, in turn, viewed Hubble as a tried-and-true agent and companion, which is why, before she died, she
1: deeded her house to him. And he really looked at himself as the caretaker of Claire Barton's legacy, of Claire Barton's memory. After Barton's death,
0: Hubble helped found the Clara Barton Memorial Association, determined to turn the house into a museum. But money troubles plagued the group and Hubble himself, leading several newspapers to write all about it. And that's when the con began. On May 3, 1914, two years after Barton died, Hubble received a visitor, Miss Mabel Rawson Hirons of North Oxford, Massachusetts.
1: Clara Barton had purchased a summer home in North Oxford, Massachusetts, that's also where Claire Barton is buried. And the Hirons were neighbors of hers.
0: Hirons said her father sent her to see how the Claire Barton Memorial was coming along. Though, thanks to the papers, Hirons already knew well and good.
1: Having read the troubles the Claire Barton Memorial Association was having, having read that Dr. Hubble was basically being left behind in this quest to see Claire Barton properly honored. But in Hubble's unwitting view, here she is coming from Claire Barton's place of burial. Here she is with family connections and ties to Claire Barton.
0: So in Mabel Hirons, Hubble sees an advocate, an ally, especially after an incident that occurs the night she arrives. Years later, when Hubble would file a lawsuit against Mabel Hirons, and we'll get to that kerfuffle in just a moment, he'd report this incident in court. I brought Susan Finta a copy of the case from the Court of Appeals of Maryland.
1: Can you read the paragraph uh, that starts with, while we were alone? While we were alone, after these conversations about the memorial, Miss Hiram said, "I see Miss Barton standing over there. Can't you see her?" "No," I said, "she seems to be trying to speak to you. Wait a minute." And then she began twitching, growing more and more violent, and then a deep breath, an apparent unconscious state. Now, before we go on, something you should know.
0: Spiritualism, this belief in using mediums to channel the dead, was big in America in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Both Clara Barton and Julian Hubble were among its followers, and Mabel Hirons knew it. After a little waiting
1: she began a forced whisper, doctor, doctor, only this was very feeble. Listen, I've brought her to help you carry out your memorial plans. She loves the home as I do, and will work with your heart and soul. She has great powers which you cannot understand now, but will see later. If you are not good to her, she will not stay. If you oppose her, you will fail. All those who oppose her suffer. A few days into Hiron's
0: stay, a similar episode occurred. Only this time, Clara Barton's supposed spirit told Hubble that yes, a memorial was in the cards, but only if Hubble put the house
1: in Mabel Hirons'
0: name. So,
1: he did. We're talking about a man in his late 60s who had spent over 35 years of his life honoring and cherishing this woman who is now gone. And here comes Ms. Hiron saying that, you know, I can do this for you. And he believed it.
0: He continued to believe for six whole years, during which time, as Susan Finto will tell you,
1: Nothing had been accomplished with the memorial.
0: And by May 1920, he realized that with Mabel Hirons around, nothing ever would.
1: He overheard a conversation in which she was indicating that she really wasn't interested in Clara Barton. She wasn't interested in the memorial association. And it began to dawn on him that she had conned him.
0: So Hubble sued Hirons to recover the property. In turn, she threw him out with nothing but the clothes on his back.
1: And that that was devastating. When she first kicks him out, he's sheltered in the woods here in Glen Echo until some of the local Glen Echo townspeople brought him in.
0: In the meantime, the house was falling apart. Mabel Hirons was filling the bedrooms with boarders and tenants of, how shall we say, questionable reputations. She was selling off tons of Clara Barton's possessions, but all of that came to an end when, in 1926, the Maryland Court of Appeals found Mabel Hiron's guilty of fraud, quote, by reason of her pretended messages
1: from Clara Barton. So at last, Julian Hubble triumphed. He did take the perseverance to see this through and was restored the property. By 1926, 1927, he's living back in the house again. Uh, he will pass away two years later. But in the last two years that he has here, he does take an effort to regain some of the possessions that Ms. Hirons had sold off.
0: And when Hubble wills the house to his nieces, he directs them to continue preserving Clara Barton's legacy. The nieces eventually sold the house to a friend, who then sold it to the newly formed Friends of Clara Barton, Incorporated. The nonprofit group had the home designated a National Historic Landmark in 1965. Ten years later, they deeded it to the National Park Service as the Clara Barton National Historic Site.
1: And none of that would have happened if it hadn't originally been Dr. Hubble's goal to see Clara Barton honored when Clara Barton dies in 1912.
0: And sure, you had a few twists and turns along the way, not to mention 60 some years but now tens of thousands of visitors come to the Clara Barton National Historic Site each year to continue honoring this woman who touched so many lives. <music> Quick side note, the Clara Barton National Historic Site is closed for renovations for at least a year, but you can link to a virtual tour on our website, MetroConnection.org. Every time in the
2: world someone re- and thank Clara for the life that is life world
0: Washington DC is experiencing a shortage of judges and it's not for lack of qualified candidates it's because judicial nominations are stuck in the. US Senate gridlock on Capitol Hill is nothing new and nominations in the Senate often get held up but That's for federal judges, people who decide constitutional issues and shape public policy. The District of Columbia is the only place in the country where local trial court judges must face that same scrutiny. So we're talking the judges who decide things like divorce cases and child custody battles. As Matthew Schwartz tells us, vacancies at the D.C. Superior Court have real consequences for city residents.
3: The flurry of letters to the Senate began more than a year ago. Local leaders were emphatic. D.C. Superior Court was overworked and understaffed, they said, and lives were hanging in the balance. Democrat Tom Carper of Delaware was one of the senators those letters were addressed to.
4: We're talking about caseloads of tens of thousands of people, and they don't have a full complement of of judges because of us. Because of us. How fair is that? Well, it's not.
3: Carper spoke on the Senate floor last year, urging his colleagues to rise above political stalemate and give an up-or-down vote on two uncontroversial local judges.
4: What we're doing is not just bad judgment, I think it's shameful, and we need to fix it.
3: Two and a half years after their nominations, those two judges were finally confirmed by the full Senate last month. But Carper is still fighting the same battles. This week, he was back in committee in front of two new nominees, one of which has been waiting for more than a year.
4: To what extent does it reduce the likelihood that somebody's going to be interested in putting their career on hold? To what extent does that reduce the interest in good people in wanting to serve? My my God tells me that can't be very helpful.
3: D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine is one of the local officials who wrote to senators in recent months, urging them to act.
5: It is entirely political when it comes down to timing of up-and-down votes.
3: Racine isn't surprised by the political stalemate. These things happen when a president nears the end of his term.
5: Congress and the president have to essentially come to agreement on our nominees. If the process were one that was entirely local, then I'm sure that we would not have the kinds of delays that we're facing now.
3: This isn't just about a few judges' careers put on hold. These delays impact some of the city's most vulnerable residents. Judith Sandalow is executive director of the Children's Law Center, which helps more than 5,000 at-risk kids and families in the district every year. At any given time, the center has about 50 attorneys interacting with family court, which has been the hardest hit by the judicial vacancies. In one case, a mother had custody of a child, who would visit her dad every couple weeks. One day, the dad didn't give his daughter back.
6: The mother went to court to file for custody, and because of the lack of judges, there was a three-month delay between the filing and that first hearing in court.
3: That was the normal delay during 2014, Sandalo says, about three to four months to even get a hearing to decide where the kid should be. That's up from one or two weeks when the court is fully staffed. One custody case took almost two full years from the time the mother filed for custody until there was a resolution.
6: During that time, mom became homeless and the family had to deal with all of the problems that come with being homeless. And on top of that, the children never knew for 23 months, for almost two years, who are they gonna live with, mom or dad?
3: The entire family was stressed out for years. The kids had emotional outbursts. They weren't doing well in school.
6: It is a horrible feeling not to know what's going to happen in your life, um, to give somebody else control over your life and to have that drag on. And we see that impact on kids. We were in the position of, of getting those kids therapy to deal with, in essence, a problem created by a lack of judges.
3: Things are better this year, Sandalow says. The court has restructured itself internally to try to cover the workload caused by the delays. And last month, after languishing for years, two judges were finally confirmed. But the court as a whole is still understaffed.
7: Oh no, it definitely does not fix the problem.
3: Irvin Nathan runs the Center for Court Excellence and spent four years as D.C. Attorney General.
7: This has been an unconscionable delay uh, by the Senate, in confirming the nominees that President Obama has sent.
3: The court is supposed to have 62 judges. Even with the recent confirmations, it's still short five people.
7: You know, we we have the number of slots that has been established uh, by the Congress and a recognition of that's the number of judges needed to do the job here. And when there are uh, 10 percent vacancies, then it's obvious that uh, there are going to be impacts on our citizens, on the administration of justice. Yeah, I've never uh, known a period where there was a higher number of vacancies.
3: And that high number of vacancies potentially affects everyone in the city. Here's current Attorney General Carl Racine.
5: The proper functioning of the courts is, I would argue, a basic right of every American and resident living in this country, and therefore those residents should not be held hostage by a political process that is not
3: attuned to their needs. In the Dirksen Senate office building this week, D.C. Attorney Robert Salerno posed for pictures with his family after a smooth initial committee hearing. You've been waiting more than a year since, your, uh, since the nomination. Do you ever think you would see this day? I'm just grateful to have the, uh, have the hearing and look forward to the future. Have they I've told you when you might hear uh, have an up or down vote? No, I think you should direct that to the committee. The committee plans to send the nominees to the Senate floor in the coming days, but even then, there's no telling when they'll get a floor vote. Even after nominees make it through committee, any senator can place a hold for any reason. I'm Matthew Schwartz.
0: Time for a break, but when we get back...
7: In addition, of course, to being national in scope, we're also a creature of the district
0: the Smithsonian's new secretary, on the institution's responsibility to Washingtonians. That and more as Metro Connection continues on WAMU
8: 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson.
0: I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. Since the November 13th terror attacks in Paris, the United States has seen a backlash against Muslims. Dozens of individuals and places of worship have been the targets of violent threats, vandalism, and assaults. But it's not just Muslims who've been on the receiving end. Members of the Sikh religion are often mistaken for Muslims. A study last year found that two-thirds of Sikh boys wearing turbans were bullied at school and called names like terrorist or bin Laden. Megan Polly brings us this story from the Sikh temple in Potomac, Maryland, where kids are
9: helping educate their peers and their teachers about the religion. On a Saturday morning, a half dozen women are chopping vegetables and mixing spices for a chickpea curry. They're preparing an Indian meal for more than 25 guests. It's called a langar, a free community meal and a Sikh tradition. Upstairs, high school sophomore Hana Kormangat is setting up tables wearing colorful traditional dress, bright yellow pants, and a flowing shirt. Her long, dark hair is covered by a light scarf.
8: I've had it, kids tease me before saying, you know, like, oh, like, what if I just cut your hair? Like, wouldn't that be funny? And I'm like, you know, it really wouldn't be that funny.
9: Uncut hair is a pillar of the Sikh faith. Hannah says one of her friends had her long hair chopped off during class by other students.
8: She was, you know, a little kid who didn't know what to do because she felt guilty. You know, like, this is my identity and someone else took it away and I let them. You know, that was her thought process.
9: But for Sikhs in the United States, there have been far worse incidents than cutting hair. In 2012, a white supremacist shot 10 people in a Sikh temple in Wisconsin, killing six of them. It was the deadliest attack on an American place of worship since 1963. In the wake of this violence, Hannah and her mother started a group here in Montgomery County to raise awareness about the religion. It's called Sikh Kid to Kid, and since 2013, members have been working with teachers and counselors at Montgomery County Public Schools. Harminder Kaur is Hannah's mother.
1: And the message we gave them there was that culturally Sikh kids are very humble, and they are not going to come knocking on your door when they have an issue especially like uh, an issue of uh, being bullied or being troubled by somebody.
9: Today, Sikh kid to kid is holding a training for about two dozen Montgomery County teachers. It includes a traditional meal and a Sikh service. There are about 10,000 Sikhs living in Montgomery County. In the D.C. metro area, there are 25 to 30,000. But many of their neighbors don't know much about the religion. A recent poll showed that 60% of Americans know nothing about Sikhism. I hadn't actually even ever heard of the Sikh religion um, until I had a student a few years ago who was wearing a turban. Mary Carter is a Head Start teacher at Beale Elementary School in Rockville. Today she is learning the basics of Sikhism.
6: On the outset, there's a different look, there's a different language, and that's what we're afraid of. But then when we get down to understanding that the message is so similar. similar. Right. Yeah. you don't see any. Sikhism
9: is the fifth-largest religion in the world. It was founded in India's Punjab province in the 15th century, a breakaway from Hinduism and its caste system. Sikhs adopted turbans, at the time a symbol of royalty, to signal that all men were
6: equal. And that underlying message to me is very similar of the the message that I was raised of, as love your neighbor as yourself. So
9: far, Sikh kid-to-kid and Montgomery County Public Schools have held four teacher trainings like this one. Tara Kelly is a curriculum specialist with MCPS.
10: The training is
9: by invitation. Any teacher in all of Montgomery County, any administrator, any, anybody is allowed to take it. Kelly says the trainings are especially important to prevent bullying, and it seems to be working. We're hearing that the kids have had really positive experiences, and I'm hoping that's because more and more people are being educated about the religion. After the training, Hannah says she was impressed with the teacher's openness.
8: I'm
6: very happy with it. I think
8: that we had such a wonderful group of teachers. A teacher tied a turban, and, you know, they were so um, willing to learn, and that was just amazing.
9: I'm Megan Polly.
0: If you're in Montgomery County and you exit the Beltway in Forest Glen, then you follow the winding Linden Lane, you'll come upon a hand-painted Japanese pagoda. It's an unexpected sight in the midst of post-war suburbia. A little farther you'll find a Dutch windmill, a Swiss chalet, and other buildings with architecture from all over the world. Since the late 1800s, this site has been a resort hotel, a prestigious all-girls school, and an annex of the Walter Reed Military Hospital. It's called the National Park Seminary, National Park for the nearby Rock Creek Park and Seminary for the girls' school. Lately, it's become a historic conservation success story. But as Vera Carruthers tells us, this story has a twist. It's a beautiful still day at the
11: National Park Seminary in Forest Glen, Maryland. I'm standing on the steps of a completely authentic Greek gymnasium, waiting for my interview subject. Her name is Jocelyn. Jocelyn Bartone. Bartone remembers falling in love with the National Park Seminary as soon as she stepped on the grounds. It was like something from a fairy tale, she says, like Alice in Wonderland. To me, this was a million romantic possibilities. From 1985 to 1989... Bartone worked at Forest Glen as a research assistant to a University of Maryland professor studying the effect of separation on military families.
9: This is the place where my,
11: I guess in some ways, where I feel my life began. In fact, she actually fell in love and met her husband here, an army officer working in the same building as her.
9: I have been very grateful to this place for many, many, many years.
11: Today, the site is a mix of eclectic historic buildings and curving rows of modern gray and white townhouses. I ask Bartone if the place still holds the romance she saw here 30 years ago. She says yes, but... I mean, those are a bunch of townhouses. <laughs> you
9: know, okay. And they had to do that, and I completely understand. You know, at that point, whatever it took.
11: By the 1990s, the property was all but abandoned. The army couldn't keep up with the rotting old buildings. After a long push by preservationists and neighbors, the military turned the site over to Montgomery County. The county paid $1 for the property, a legal formality. The site was historic, but decrepit. It would cost millions to rehab. The county had a plan to fund the restoration, condos.
12: So as you can see, this is the the only unit where you have um, windows in the bathroom.
11: Oliver Harris is the sales manager at the gymnasium condos. In 2004, a team of developers bought the entire property from the county, again for $1. As part of the deal, they'd rescue the historic structures and allow some access to the public.
12: So if we go back out this way, I'll show you the other bedroom.
11: Harris stresses this is not your usual condo. The building dates back to 1907.
12: You have a building that looks like a uh, Greek temple. You know that, So we have all the names of the units are Greek god names or Greek places. This unit's called the Parthenon. You've got units that have 35-foot vaulted ceilings, which I don't think you see very much of.
11: The Greek gymnasium is just one example of the site's distinctive features. The first building went up in 1887 as a hotel and weekend getaway for D.C. elites. The property expanded in 1894 to become a prestigious girls' boarding school, or seminary. Bonnie Rosenthal with Save Our Seminary says the unusual architecture comes from the school's unique philosophy of education.
4: Their way of teaching the girls about the world was essentially to create that built environment here for the girls on the campus. So we have a Japanese pagoda, an English castle, a Dutch windmill. Rosenthal
11: takes me on a historical tour of the property. She saves the best stop for last, the Grand
4: Ballroom. Five stories, gothic windows, beautiful. Uh, buttress, wood buttress.
11: The school was the most glamorous period in the site's history. It abruptly came to an end in 1942. During World War II, the property was annexed by the military as a rehabilitation center for veterans.
4: Every day, a helicopter would land on the ball field.
11: Fred Turner remembers a time when Korean War veterans were streaming onto the property, renamed Forest Glen Annex.
4: Patients that they would bring up from Walter Reed, they were transferred as a Glen.
11: Turner moved to the annex when he was 12 years old. That was in 1949. His father was stationed there as a military dentist. He spent his teenage years hanging out with GIs undergoing treatment at Forest Glen.
4: First, I was very intimidated by seeing guys with, you know, without a leg or without an arm or, you know, their skin all burned. You know, it was kind of scary as a, you know, a 12, 13-year-old kid. But he befriended them and they befriended us.
11: He says for a teen boy, there was no better place to live.
4: It was absolutely... A wonderland.
11: One of his favorite memories is delivering newspapers on his usual route where he'd stop by the women's army barracks.
4: Of course, I always made it a point to try to open the door real quick, being a young teenager, and hoping I'd catch them in their panties, you know. (laughs) More than 60 years later, Turner says he's
11: grateful the property's been fixed up in his lifetime.
4: I'm very happy to have seen it, you know, saved. I really am.
11: You can buy a piece of the history yourself, Nine of the units at the Greek gymnasium are still up for grabs. I'm Vera Carruthers.
0: Curious to see the National Park Seminary for yourself? We have historical photos and information about public tours on our website, metroconnection.org. 19 museums, 20 libraries, numerous research centers, plus the 1,800 animals at the National Zoo. All of it is now the responsibility of David Scorton, who recently became the 13th secretary of the Smithsonian Institution.
7: And truly engaging Smithsonian Institution. Congratulations, Mr. Secretary.
0: Scorton is a cardiologist who's served as president of both Cornell University and the University of Iowa. Lara Nober sat down with Scorton at the Smithsonian's Anacostia Community Museum to discuss the Smithsonian's role in the 21st century, its responsibility to D.C. residents, and, of course, pandas. In
2: your installation remarks, you made mention of magic and how the Smithsonian can inspire that. I'm wondering what magic does the institution hold for you?
7: A longtime Washingtonian, lifelong Washingtonian who was a very close friend of mine, passed away this last week, was a man named Austin Kiplinger, and when I got this appointment in March of 14, Kip contacted me to congratulate me and he said, do you know what the Smithsonian is? I can describe it in four words, and I said, please, and he said, everything under the sun. So the magic for me is that I have yet to find a topic, I'm sure there are topics, but I have yet to find a topic that I cannot find someone with expertise at the Smithsonian. So the magic for me is the breadth.
2: So how do you plan on engaging the public in the work of the Smithsonian for the future?
7: One of my main jobs in any leadership position of a nonprofit that's in the public trust is to take advice, to seek advice, and to listen to it as much as possible. And one way I'm going to try to do that in Washington is I'm uh, setting up a youth advisory council of high school students to come and advise me. And Mayor Bowser very generously has agreed to help me set that up through her administration. And I want to hear what they have to say because I think people my age are obviously a big part of the audience, but I think as we go forward, we're going to be serving younger younger audience. And so I want to hear firsthand from Washington high school kids.
2: If we're talking about the future, you know, we are living in this rapidly changing world. And I wonder how you see the Smithsonian's role as we move through the 21st century.
7: I think what you're asking is, how can the Smithsonian be relevant to changes in the world? And I think the way to be relevant is really, I would say, three legs of the stool. One is to have the courage to study big problems. And the Smithsonian does quite a bit of that. I'd like to see us do even more. The second leg of the stool is courage, courage to tackle things that are controversial. The third leg is the convening power of the Smithsonian. I've always viewed the Smithsonian, for which obviously I take no credit, as being an honest broker of discussions of difficult issues. And so why wouldn't we be one of the places in Washington and in the country where we could convene conversations on issues where we don't agree as a society and use the convening power to bring together people of varying points of view and let the public decide what they think.
2: I think when a lot of people think of the Smithsonian, they think of Washington, D.C. But what responsibility does the institution have to the district, if any?
7: We're a big part of the footprint of Washington, D.C. And so we have to think very carefully about how we're serving the city. And if we look at the visitorship of our museums a lot of it comes from Washingtonians and so in addition of course to being national in scope national in intention national in organizational design we're also a creature of the district and so I think it's very important for us to help visualize and maybe convene discussions about issues in urban America in general and in Washington specifically and we'll have to look for a chance to do that.
2: We've taken up a lot of your time and I appreciate your very thoughtful answers, but I have a really important question that I think Washingtonians really want to know the answer to, and that is- Should I leave now? That is, are Bao Bao and Bebe getting along?
7: You know, much to my chagrin, they have not let me near Bebe. So I've suffered some emotional scars from that. (laughs) I'm working to get through through the emotions. Um, I hope to see Bebe sometime in the flesh. Um, I actually think that Bebe's um, birth is a great example of one important reason to still have zoos in the 21st century, and that's for species conservation. It's a national treasure, not only in the interface between people and other members of the planet, but the research that they do there is unbelievably impressive. I can tell you that from a medical point of view. Nonetheless, despite my distinguished background, two college presidencies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they did not let me near baby.
0: mapping Washington, D.C. in the year
12: 2215.
0: How did you come about with that vision for two centuries from now?
12: Part of it was a very scientific process called imagination. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5.
0: Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Maps are pretty advanced these days. You can find just about any address with a tap or swipe of your smartphone.
12: But what about mapping the future? say, Washington,
0: D.C., in the year 2215?
12: What will those neighborhoods look like 200 years from now? You know, it's it's a big question.
0: And it's a question D.C. resident Eric Moe has been seeking answers to with the Atlas of Future Neighborhoods. He hopes to release this book-length compilation of maps, illustrations, and descriptions sometime next year, along with a location-dependent app. The self-pronounced Chief of Expeditions for the Future Cartographic Society has been walking present-day neighborhoods with local residents to envision what these areas will look, smell, and
12: feel like in two centuries. People who do serious urban planning, they're talking about amenities that will make a difference for their own lifestyle right now. I wanted to get at something that was a little bit bigger than self-interest, something that was more about the human dynamic. I recently met up with Eric along the New York Avenue corridor. We're standing now at 4th and New York Avenue Northeast. And his vision for this area is worlds away from the industrial traffic-clogged thoroughfare you'll find here and now. 200 years from now, this will be a fruit orchard stretching all the way from the convention center to the arboretum.
0: And how did you come about with that vision for two centuries from now?
12: Part of it was a very scientific process called imagination. And part of it was honestly just conversations with friends and people who live in the neighborhood, thinking about people's backgrounds, things that inspired them, things that were maybe missing from this landscape, and just feeling the pain points, you know, thinking about how much the noise of traffic is a burden psychologically and physically. You know, it has ramifications for how you live your life. Uh, You shy away from talking to people if there's too much noise around you and not just the noise, but the visual blight of fast food restaurants and gas stations and um, and these things we need to get by in 2015, but 200 years from now, maybe not.
0: So can you take us back to if there was an aha moment when this whole idea was born, this atlas, this future cartographic society, take us back to that
12: moment. I had been working for a few years in the worlds of art, especially community-based art, that tries to use culture as a means for connecting people to activist causes or to meaningful change in their communities. And as I got to know DC and all the changes that were taking place, you know, I've lived here close to a decade and the transformation in that period has just been tremendous. And it's often not uh, talked about in terms of the, the effects that we're having on people's psychology. Um, We talk about um, new condos. We talk about new restaurants. um, But for me, I guess the aha moment was feeling the psychological change of the city.
0: So why is it that you chose 200 years from now in terms of this project where you're envisioning
12: what D.C. will be like? I wanted it to be far enough out where it wasn't practical to be self-interested. You know, what's What would you like to pass on in this place that you currently treasure? What's the essential humanity of a landscape, you know? So for me, 200 years is it's past your own life, probably even your grandchildren's lifetime. And uh, it's a chance to, to think about the psychology of the environment.
0: Can you describe your methodology? It's really interesting to me how you've gone about gleaning information so that you can make these narratives and illustrations and maps.
12: Yeah. So I've done this not just in DC, but all over the country. I've traveled to different cities and towns and rural locations. And um, I get to know somebody who is a resident. um, And I'll talk to them a little bit about their background, where they come from, their upbringing. And then we walk around the neighborhood together. And it's a process of really opening the senses to everything that is available. So in this environment, there's a lot of traffic, a lot of cars. You know, there are a few trees, uh, some older brick buildings, but it's not just that, it's the smells. So thinking about um, if something's cooking or if there are the smells of, uh, you know, an auto garage where things are being repaired or gasoline is fumes or the tastes even, stopping and having a a bite of something that's a specialty or something that's unique or not so unique to that neighborhood. And all these things, all the five senses really add up to um, the experience of, of this landscape, you know? And, and so I try to get at it beyond just being a space with streets and crosswalks and stop signs and try to get people to think about it in terms of their human interaction, their human perception of of the environment that they're in.
0: I love your optimism and, and your willingness to say, you know what, my ideas might be utopian because I have to tell you, we've been standing here for 20, 30 minutes and in the background all we're hearing our engines and horns, and we heard a siren a little bit ago. I had to turn off the recorder when that happened. Picturing an orchard here, a bucolic orchard, I'm having trouble with that.
12: Yeah, it takes a leap of imagination. That's why I hope art is a, is a tool for getting people to see things that are not possible to see in their, in their daily life, you know? Um, you know, in my head, I've got a whole narrative about what it looks like as you walk from one end to the other. Um, And so this is the sort of thing that I'll put in the book and find other ways of telling the story through pictures and maps and things, you know, anything to help people imagine um, and see things that, that I can see through doing this work.
0: That was Eric Moe, chief of expeditions for the Future Cartographic Society, talking about his Atlas of Future Neighborhoods. He hopes to finish the book and app next year. If you'd like to take a neighborhood walk with Eric, you can find a contact link on our website, metroconnection.org. The internet can make you famous for all sorts of things, and oftentimes the wilder they are, the greater your celebrity will be. But one woman in Baltimore has gained hundreds of thousands of subscribers to her YouTube channel for something else entirely. And as Karen Turner tells us, now it's her full-time job.
8: Good evening, this is Marie again with you. In this video, a woman is staring directly into the camera against a beige background of squiggly wallpaper. She's running her fingers through the bristles of a hairbrush. Fingers
4: through the bristles.
6: And that
8: gentle tapping. This video has more than 13 million views. The
10: tapping sounds remind me
8: of the sound of the rain. It's just one of thousands of videos online featuring the sounds of whispering, tapping, crinkling tissue paper, sounds that millions tune into every day to help them relax. It's a phenomenon called Audio Sensory Meridian Response, or ASMR for short. It's a physical sensation triggered by gentle sounds.
10: ASMR is a wonderful, pleasant, tingling sensation that usually starts at the top of your head and travels into your spine and into your limbs. That's Maria,
8: who doesn't want her last name used. She goes by her YouTube name, Gentle Whispering Maria, and she's become an online phenomenon for her tingle inducing videos. Back in 2009,
10: I was going through hard time. In my life, I was uh, depressed
8: and anxious at the same time. One day, she was clicking around online when she stumbled on a video by a woman named Whisper Flower. Hi everybody, it's Whisper Flower. And as soon as I heard the woman's voice, making, it just sent making,
10: a I'm shower making, of like sparkly making, tingles all the way down my body and... I recognize that feeling as that same weird sensation that I would get from time to time
8: um, unintentionally. Like many ASMR fans, Maria remembers getting that same weird feeling as a little girl. I've always had the sensation throughout my
10: life since I was a very young little kid. From nurses in, in school, when they would check for lice in our head and they would touch my hair and run their fingers through my
8: hair would give me this weird tingling sensation. Maria became hooked on these strange videos. She started watching them daily, sometimes up to four hours a day. It somehow became
10: my secret escape. Uh, Sort of a therapy, especially in the beginning when you first discover ASMR, you really cannot get enough of it. And after about just about three, four months of watching Whisper videos on a regular,
8: I've realized
10: that I didn't have depression or anxiety anymore.
8: That's when she decided to start making her own videos. And I just decided to start with the
10: flipping of the pages. And all I did was just flip page by page,
8: gently glide my hands through it.
10: I wonder, where are my recipes?
8: This kind of scenario is common. ASMR videos often feature hours of someone turning pages in a magazine or examining the contents of their purse. Others feature role plays, such as someone pretending to give you a haircut or a manicure. Or, as in this video by whisperer Maddie Tingles, a librarian telling you where to find books.
5: Oh, really quick, do you have your um, library card?
8: Some popular ASMR videos weren't produced with that in mind. Take PBS paint instructor Bob Ross, who passed away long before
7: YouTube came along. This also works very well with a little one-inch brush. Very well. Either way that you want to do it.
8: Then there's that soft-spoken public radio sound.
7: Here's a poem for today by Wallace Stevens.
8: Garrison Keillor is a favorite among ASMR fans.
7: One must have a mind of winter. To regard the frost and the boughs.
8: While you watch meditation or
10: listen to rain or birds, you might as well also listen to someone do something
8: mundane. Since recording her first video in 2011, Maria's following has grown immensely. She has over half a million subscribers, and her fans are diehard. Here's a review from crack.com.
2: It, it does feel like somebody has one of those metal things that they put down yeah. on your head and you oh, scratch yeah. your head with, it oh, yeah. really feels But see, that's a slightly erotic sensation. Emotion, I don't think it is.
8: Some people react badly to ASMR videos. They think it's sexual, or that whispering tingle gives them the creeps. Maria insists it's not erotic, but she understands why some people might dislike her videos.
10: There's a lot of intimacy, um, but it's intimacy from a human to human, and for a lot of people, it's uncomfortable. Number one is that... It gives you pleasure, and pleasure in our society is a little bit of a taboo nowadays for some reason, which is very unfortunate, because we all seek out pleasure all the
8: time. Maria's fans have helped her turn her relaxation videos into a full-time gig, allowing her to quit her admin job at a medical company. But she says her videos are really all about the fans.
10: We get feedback from people all over the world. From all walks of life, veterans who are um, fighting night terrors or single parents fall asleep together with their children. It's definitely therapeutic.
4: I like what this one. This so is and so sweet,
0: so I hope you like that. I'm Karen Turner. Mm-hmm. You've heard about ASMR? Now see it in action. You can check out some mesmerizing videos on our website, metroconnection.org. We'll close today's show with our monthly look at the region's literary life in a segment we call Bookend. Kyle Dargan's newest and fourth collection of poetry is called Honest Engine. It explores the mechanics of the heart and the mind with precise, sometimes brutal, language. Jonathan Wilson met the poet on the Potomac River on Roosevelt Island, one of Dargan's favorite area spots.
13: When I first moved to D.C., I was living in uh, Glover Park. I would walk down Wisconsin Avenue to the Key Bridge and sort of look out in the water. And I always was curious about, you know, what is that that island over there? And it's hard to, you know, figure out how to get there from the D.C. side. So I eventually had to walk from Reagan Airport to uh, Roslyn, and that's how I figured it out. And once I came out here, um, it sort of became a special place for me.
14: 2015 has been a busy year for you. Uh, We should disclose, first of all, that you teach at American University, you know, owns the license for WAMU. But I actually came across some of your poems without realizing that you taught at American. And I was just struck by the language, the precision, and the passion behind, you know, your poetry, especially this latest book. The, The title is Honest Engine. Can you tell us what that phrase means to you?
13: As I talk about in the introduction, I went through a phase where I had a number of friends pass away. Um, uh, close, uh, their deaths came close to each other. And it really put me in that dark space of thinking about you know your life after so many of the people that you grew up with have left um, the world, the world as we know it. And so for me, the honest engine is sort of like the mind and the heart in that moment where you're trying to figure out you know, once you're sort of more or less, you know, on your own uh, in the world, you know, what is it that you still believe? You know, what is it that you still value? And sort of making sense of that with your mind and with your heart, like those are the oddest engines that sort of pump out um, or refine, you know, your new perspective on the world. So that's where the titles kind of comes from.
14: So you came from New Jersey down to um, a school that'll be familiar to a lot of people down here, UVA for undergrad. When you got to college, were you already thinking, I am gonna be a poet?
13: Yeah, I mean, I think most people go to UVA for the comm school or the law school. I actually went to UVA for the English department uh, because a teacher who was there who became my um, mentor, Rita Dove, Pulitzer Prize winner, former poet laureate, I knew she was in the English department. I'd read her work. I said, well, if I'm going to do this writing thing, I think I want to study with her. It was a really nurturing space.
14: What about stylistically? When you go back and look at your you know, first book, or even before that, the poems that you wrote uh, back in school, have you changed drastically? And, and where do you think you got your style from, the style that you're at right
13: now? Uh, well, part of it, like I always say, my first English teacher uh, was hip hop. So in terms of uh, rhythm, in terms of attention to language, in terms of word play, um, that's always sort of been a part of my work. Um, I'm also a writer that's really interested in um, the line. You know, one of the things that usually distinguishes poetry from prose is the fact, you know, that the line stops somewhere, you know, in the page, not necessarily going all the way to the margin. So definitely using the line as a structure. So I'm big on uh, lineation, but really I have this concept called bibliocide Which is basically every time I write a new book, I'm trying to kill the author that I was in the last book so that by the time like you line all my books up together, you can't say, oh, he was just doing the same thing over and over again. Like every time I'm trying to find a new way into myself, be that conceptually, be that stylistically. So every book, you know, there's a there's a bit of a change.
14: Um, You've been down in this area of the Mid-Atlantic for a while now, but home is New Jersey. School brought you down here, you know, obviously you have a job at American University now, but is this home for you now? Are you comfortable saying, like, this is home?
13: Yeah, I mean, I'm one of those people, like, I... I understand that I'm one of the transients that sort of have come to D.C. and populate a lot of D.C. So I'm I'm always conscious of that divide between the people who have grown up here who are like Washingtonians and the people who have moved to D.C. and sort of become a Washingtonian.
14: Do you still still feel insecure about it?
13: Um, I don't feel insecure about it because I've always been honest about the divide and I've I've always respected the opinions of those who are native Washingtonians and understand that that's a perspective um, that needs to be considered. But yeah, I mean, I don't really see myself going anywhere. Um, D.C. It's it. It was hard to be a poet in New Jersey. Like, if you weren't a Mary Baraka or you weren't Gerald Stern, you know, or you and you can't be William Carlos Williams, you know, you're gone. Like, <laughs> no one wanted to listen to you. But I came to D.C. and like D.C. has really embraced me, and I'm I, I'm very appreciative of that. Um, and that's why I try to give back to the D.C. variety community because it's done so much for me. That was
0: poet Kyle Dargan speaking with Jonathan Wilson. <music> And that's Metro Connection. This is the last you'll be hearing from us for a while. I'll be taking some time off over the next few months, and Metro Connection is taking a break too, as WAMU News does some big thinking about how to deliver the highest quality local stories straight to your ears. It's been an amazing journey so far. In my five years as host, we've taken you to just about every corner of DC, Maryland, Virginia, even making stops in Delaware, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. We'll be back in a new form next year, and we'd love your help imagining what that looks and sounds like. What kinds of stories have gotten you jazzed? What sorts of local storytelling do you want to hear more of? Email us at metro at wamu.org and let us know. Or send us a tweet. Our handle is at metro. Our theme song Every Little Bit Hurts is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. We list all our music at metroconnection.org where you can link to our podcast and check out the thousands of stories we've played through the years. And with that, as I've said to you roughly 250 sometimes now and meant it wholeheartedly each and every time. I'm Rebecca Shear and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 885 News. Yeah
6: are